So last week we started looking at the story of Joseph, and it is such a compelling story. And people all around the world for millennia have relished in this story because it's so compelling. And we talked about that last week, some of the different reasons why the story of Joseph so stirs our imagination. And one reason, I think, is because it's so detailed. You know, a lot of the Bible is uh, kind of summarizes things. It, it leaves some things to the imagination. But there's something about the way the story of Joseph is written. It feels like you're reading a novel. It's like you're watching a movie play out in your own mind. Uh, in fact, last week, I, we kind of ended the sermon there in that last verse of Genesis 37 with sort of a, you know, next week on the life of Joseph because it gives you just that little bit of a teaser and kind of leaves you hanging like a cliffhanger episode. And so we, we skip over chapter 38. That's like a, a whole different show that's playing there about Judah. And we come to chapter 39 and we start back at the very beginning. And it's like when you're watching a TV show and the next episode says previously on the life of Joseph. That's where we start here in chapter 39. So let me do a quick previously on the life of Joseph and get you caught up if you didn't get to listen to last Sunday's sermon. Jacob uh, has, a, has 12 sons. His second youngest son is Joseph, and he's his favorite. Now, the brothers resent Joseph because of this. Now, Joseph is a young man of integrity, a young man of honesty. He's earned his father's trust. And it's because of that favoritism, because of that trust, that, that Jacob trusts Joseph more than all of his other brothers that they've come to resent and hate him. But not just because... Jacob has given him favoritism and given him this coat of many colors, but God has shown Joseph favoritism and has given him this gift of dreams and dream interpretations. And so all of this culminates in a fit of jealousy where Joseph's brothers strip him of his coat, mock him for his dreams, throw him in a pit, and then sell him into slavery. In Joseph's entire life, things were always looking up until he was let down into a pit. And now he's being led down the road of, of slavery into Egypt. Joseph had everything, but he ended up with nothing. No status, no reputation, no credentials. Everything was stripped away from him. But we left his story last week on a hopeful note. Even though he lost all of this, no one and nothing could strip away his faith. Nothing could take away God's favor on Joseph, that the Lord was with him and faithful to him. Nobody could take away from him the fact that God had a great plan for Joseph and that everything God had said would someday come true. The only question was when and how. So last week set the stage for this whole series of messages. And we learned that no matter what kind of a pit we might find ourselves in, we can always look up in faith and trust to God who will never leave us or forsake us. This week, Joseph finds himself in another difficult situation, one in which he has a choice. He can do the right thing or he can do the easy thing. Maybe you've been there too. And I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes you wonder, why is the right thing Always so hard, right? I mean, it, it seldom ever is the right thing to do, the easy thing to do. Am, am I right? You know, maybe you discover somebody in your neighborhood that's in need. And you think, well, I've got the means. I could help out this person. 
But if I do, it's going to keep me from buying this thing that I really wanted or going on this trip that I really wanted. Do I do the right thing or the easy thing? Maybe you're somewhere and somebody wants to share some juicy gossip with you. And, oh, you know you shouldn't listen to gossip. You know you shouldn't be a part of the rumor mill, but they've got your curiosity peaked. Do you do the right thing or do you do the easy thing? Maybe you've got a friend that's involved in some risky behavior that could cause them some harm. And you know you need to say something. You need to step in and intervene, but you don't want to lose the friendship. Do you do the easy thing or do you do the hard thing? Maybe you're at a store and you get home and you realize that the cashier gave you too much change. Or you're digging through your bags and you're looking at the receipt and you realize that they forgot to charge you for something. Do you do the easy thing or do you do the right thing? Well, in Genesis chapter 39, we discover that even when it's hard and it's costly, we should always do the right thing. And though we may have to pay a price for doing the right thing, God will not only bless us in the long run, but through us, He'll bless the lives of those around us. And that's really the first lesson we learn here, the first truth, the first theme, if you will, of Genesis 39, is that having Christ-like character has a ripple effect. It, It ripples out from us into the lives of those around us. Let's look at Genesis chapter 39, verses 1 through 6. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he prospered. And he lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did, Joseph found favor in his eyes and became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household and he entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and of all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had. With Joseph in charge, he did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. We see from the start that providential presence of God that was hinted at last week, right? The very end last week, we had this teaser, this hint that God was going to be with Joseph and was going to make everything okay. And we see here at the beginning of chapter 39 that Joseph was successful, that he was prosperous because God was with him. There's a couple of things we can deduce from this. One is that we are blessed by living in the presence of God. We are blessed by living in God's presence. God's presence was evident in Joseph's life, giving him success and everything he did to the point that he ascended to basically the second in command of Potiphar's estate. Now, the key phrase here that's going to become a refrain throughout this story is the Lord was with Joseph. This is the key to understanding Joseph's entire story and to drawing the correct application from his story for our lives. The Lord was with him really as a statement of grace. Yes, Joseph was a man of integrity. Yes, he worked hard. He was honest. 
He was responsible. But Joseph wasn't perfect. He was a sinner just like you and me. He had his faults and his weaknesses. But God chose Joseph to be his instrument, to be his servant. He chose him out of grace and mercy, just as God chooses us, just as he calls us to follow him, not because of anything in ourselves, but because of his grace and mercy. What I'm going to say today is not some kind of prosperity gospel. It's not some kind of a name it and claim it message because that's not what the Bible teaches. In fact, the Bible is clear and Joseph's life certainly illustrates this for us that following Jesus often results in hardship, in persecution, in sacrifice, can even end in death. Prosperity doesn't always look like we think it should. It's not always what we want it to be. I mean, if you think about it, what was Joseph prospering at? What was Joseph successful at? Being a slave. I don't know about you, but that's not what I attain to in my life. His prosperity was at being a good slave. Despite the outward appearance. See, Joseph was right where God wanted him to be. God needed him to be Potiphar's slave at this time, at this moment, to prepare him and to put him in position for even greater plans that God had in store for him. Psalm chapter 1 verse 3 talks about this when it describes the righteous person as someone who's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever they do, they prosper. Now Joseph, I'm sure, did not feel like he was planted by streams of water. He felt like he was a weed in the wasteland, right? But as the psalm in the verses before this, describes Joseph was one who didn't walk in step with the wicked. He didn't stand in the way that sinners take. He didn't sit in the company of mockers. No, Joseph was the kind of man whose delight was in the law of the Lord. And it was on God's law that he meditated day and night. It was by being faithful in his position, by being a man of integrity and responsibility and hard work, If you pardon the cliche, it's because he bloomed where God had planted him. That's why Joseph was prosperous. He had earned his master's trust and favor. And as a result, God's blessing on Joseph actually overflowed into blessing Potiphar and everything he did. His entire household, it said the blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, whether it was in the house or out in the field. And that brings us to the second truth that we learn in these first six verses. And that's that not only are we blessed by living in God's presence, we're blessed by believing in God's promises. Because if we think about Joseph embodying Psalm 1, then Joseph must meditate on God's Word, on His law day and night. But I got to thinking, what was God's Word to Joseph, right? Because we're in Genesis here, right? I mean, there's All of this is yet to be written. All of this has not been done yet. So what was God's word? What of God would Joseph be meditating on? Well, it's God's promise, specifically his covenant promise to Abraham. You remember that? In Genesis chapter 12, the Lord had said to Abram, now this is Joseph's great-grandfather, right? The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, 
your people, and your father's household. Isn't that kind of where Joseph is right now? To the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It's kind of hard to miss. There's a lot of blessing going on in this verse, isn't it? A lot of blessing this and blessing that. God promised to bless Abraham and his family, the people of Israel. God promised to bless those who bless them and that through them, by blessing them, God says, I will bless all peoples on earth. And we see this being fulfilled in part right here in Potiphar's household. Because God had blessed Joseph, Potiphar blessed Joseph. And because Potiphar blessed Joseph, God blessed Potiphar through Joseph because Potiphar had blessed Joseph and because Joseph was blessed by God. And there's just a lot of blessing going on. It's kind of like those Christmas lights that you fish out at the beginning of, you know, it's right before Christmas. You bring out those Christmas lights. You put them away so neatly. Now they're a tangled mess. And you don't know where the beginning and the end of it is. That's what's going on right here. Because it's not a formula. It's not about if you do A and B, then God will do C. Who is blessed first and, and, and who is blessed last is like the chicken and the egg, right? It doesn't matter. The point is that if we live in God's presence, if we live in this acknowledgement that God is with us, if we believe in God's promises, not only can we expect to receive the blessing of God, but more importantly, we can expect that through us, God will be at work blessing our neighbors, our co-workers, our classmates, our family, our friends, even people we don't know. This is what Paul was really talking about in Romans 8.28. When he said, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. We love that verse. That God's going to work all things to good, but we tend to leave out that key phrase. Those who are called according to his purpose. Joseph may not have understood that purpose, but he knew that God was with him. He knew that God had a purpose to which he was calling him. Those dreams that he had as, as a child, you know, he must have pondered those and meditated on those. Those were a constant reminder that God had some plan for him that frankly was beyond his wildest dreams. And when God works our trials and difficulties to our good, it's always for His purpose. It's always to result in the blessing of others, especially the blessing of sharing with them the good news of God's grace. That's what Jesus was getting at in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, when He said, In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. When we're shining the goodness of God and the character of Christ is shining forth from us to others, God will bless us so that we can extend His blessing to those around us. Now, I was thinking about this today. What does that look like for us right now in this moment? We see here what this looked like for Joseph when he was in slavery in Egypt. What does this look like for us? Because you probably feel like you're in slavery in some respect, right? We, we feel imprisoned. We feel shut in and, and cut off from life as normal, from the people that we want to see. So how do we shine the goodness of God right now? Well, it's simple. 
Do the right thing. Do whatever it is that God has put in front of you. And for some of us, that means staying at home. For others, that means figuring out how to get back to work in a safe way. Maybe for you, it means spending more time with your family. Or learning how to be a homeschool teacher to your kids. Maybe it means getting to know your neighbors for the first time, shamefully. Or maybe it means reaching out and checking on those senior adult members of our church to make sure they're okay. For all of us, doing the right thing, doing what's right in front of us, means being cautious and being kind. As a church, at least for the next few weeks, we're going to be staying the course. We're going to continue to do everything online with our Bible studies and our worship services. And we're doing that to be kind and to be cautious. And really, that's kind of the, 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 the rule of thumb that we're going to be using as we do eventually navigate our return to being on campus. We want to be cautious. We want to make sure that we're being safe, that we're protecting people the best way we can. So for those who are able to come back when that time comes, who want to come back, we want to be cautious and protect you. But we also want to be kind for those that can't come back when that time comes, or who don't feel comfortable yet. And so we want to continue to offer those online opportunities as well. What about you? How are you being kind and cautious right now with those in your life? Where has God planted you in the midst of all of this? And how can you be faithful and grow and be prosperous in that environment? How is God blessing you so that you can be a blessing to others. Now, unfortunately, Joseph's story doesn't end there, right? I mean, often when we're enjoying the blessings of God and being a blessing to others, that's when the enemy strikes. You see, Satan's not going to mess with you if you're being ineffective as a follower of Christ, right? I mean, if you're more concerned about worldliness and living like the world, the devil kind of leaves you alone because he's got you where he wants you. But the minute we really start to shine good deeds for the glory of God, once we really start letting the light of Christ shine through us, we start to draw the attention of the devil. The more we look like Jesus, and Jesus said this, Jesus said, the world hated me, it's going to hate you too. And the more we look like Jesus, the more we're going to start to draw that same kind of disdain that the world had for him. This is what Jesus was saying in John chapter 3. He's talking to Nicodemus. He said, light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. And that's exactly what happened to Joseph. But Joseph still maintained his integrity. He kept his character even while he lost his coat. And that brings us to the second main theme and truth that we pick up here in this part of Joseph's story is that resisting temptation is always right even when it seems like the wrong choice to make. Let's pick that up in that last half of verse 6. And I'm going to read through verse 20. It's a big part of the story. Now Joseph was well built and handsome. And after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, Come to bed with me. But he refused. With me in charge, he told her, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house. Everything he owns has been entrusted to my care. 
No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you, because you were his wife. How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And though she spoke to Joseph day after day, he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, Come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that, she, that he had left his cloak in her hand and had run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. And when he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. She kept his cloak beside her until his master came home. And then she told him this story. That Hebrew slave you brought us came to me to make sport of me. But as soon as I screamed for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me, he burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. You know, Joseph last week faced jealous brothers and he suffered losing the code of his father's favor and became a slave in Egypt. Well, this week, Joseph faces the lust of his boss's wife, loses the robes of his master's trust and becomes a prisoner in Pharaoh's dungeon. Just as his brothers had failed to see him as a person of worth and value, they only saw him as a threat, so Potiphar's wife fails to see his humanity. He's just a Hebrew slave, right? Better, a little more than an animal. He's basically property, right? I own him. And he has to obey me, doesn't he? Just because I'm the wife of his master. He has to do what I say, right? She doesn't see the image of God in Joseph. He's just a plaything, a piece of meat. He's there for her to use as she pleases. That's what lust always does. It always reduces the other person to an object, an animal, a slave. Adultery and sex outside of marriage, it's never about love. It's always about control. It's about using that other person for your own pleasure. It's wrong, cheap, demeaning. It takes what God created to be a pure river and it pollutes it into a sewer. And yes, you may think it starts out as sweetness, but it always ends as poison. Joseph knew this. And he knew what Potiphar's wife wanted and he knew the possible consequences of refusing her advances. Think about it. What could have been the easy way out for Joseph? It was customary in Egyptian culture for masters to use their slaves in this way. Nobody would have batted an eye at Joseph giving in to her request. And who knows, Potiphar may not have even cared. But Joseph had a higher standard than the culture around him. And it took a great deal of courage and integrity for Joseph to say no and to fight that battle day after day after day. He never gave up. He never backed down. He never surrendered. But he was humble 
and honest as he tried to explain to Potiphar's wife why he was saying no. She was married to his boss, no less. Just because she didn't honor the wedding vows didn't mean that they didn't need to be honored. Joseph was more willing to honor them than she was. Secondly, Joseph was trusted. Potiphar had entrusted him with everything. He was not going to give his master any reason not to trust him. But third, most importantly, God was watching. Sure, they might have been able to keep this hidden from Potiphar, or maybe Potiphar wouldn't even care. But you know what? God would always see, and God most definitely cared. And this was the main thing for Joseph. He refused to sin against Potiphar, against Potiphar's wife, against himself. He refused to sin against God and do this wicked thing. Joseph's character here in the face of temptation is impeccable. He shows respect, honesty, humiliation, genuine love for his master. He shows the fact that he's willing to call sin what it is, wickedness. And it shows that he had wisdom. He wouldn't even allow himself to be in the same room with her. He did everything he could to flee temptation. It's kind of today what people call the Mike Pence rule. You know, because he won't, he said publicly that he won't sit down and have dinner with another woman who's not his wife, at least not alone. And he's been mocked. He's been made fun of by people saying, oh, well, that's so simplistic. And oh, that must mean that you're weak and there's something wrong with you. It's sort of like Joseph here in this story. What does he do? He flees the temptation. Typically, we think of fleeing as being weak, simplistic. Oh, you coward for running away. But when it comes to temptation, to flee temptation is the wise thing to do. It's the obedient thing to do. In fact, Paul even wrote in 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. What a great description of Joseph and what he did here. But what happens next shows us that sometimes the right thing to do seems like the wrong call to make. You know, sometimes when we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're loving Jesus, we're following Him every day, we're trying to share the gospel and and bless those around us, and things just get worse. You know, it's it's like we get punished for doing the right thing. It's like the person you're trying to bless is stabbing you in the back all along. And we think, well, that's gratitude for you. You know, no good deed goes unpunished, as the saying says. I'm sure that's how Joseph felt. Just as Joseph's brother set him up for a fall, Potiphar's wife does the same thing. She arranged for her servants to conveniently be out of the house to set the stage for her to try to seduce Joseph one last time. And she knew that he would say no, so she made sure they were within earshot. So that when he did, she could grab that cloak and yell and scream and accuse Joseph of something he didn't do. And Joseph is once again stripped of his coat, his position, his responsibilities. He once again has been forcibly removed and locked up. He's been betrayed. Lies have been told about him again. And once again, the symbol of trust and favoritism is used to deceive and defame. But just as Joseph's story teaches us that Christ-like character can have ripple effects 
into the lives of those around us. Just as it teaches us that it's always right to resist temptation even when it seems to go against us. The final theme of this chapter is that hope can always enable us to endure any injustice that we may face. Look with me back at verse 20. But while Joseph was there in the prison, and here's that refrain again, the Lord was with him. He showed him kindness, granted him favor in the eyes of the prison warden. So the warden put Joseph in charge of all those held in the prison. And he was made responsible for all that was done there. The warden, kind of like Potiphar, paid no attention to anything under Joseph's care because the Lord was with Joseph and gave him success in whatever he did. See, Joseph could be betrayed by his brothers, slandered by his master's wife, have his robes and titles and positions stripped away. He could be sold. He could be enslaved. He could be imprisoned. But what nobody could ever do was strip away God's presence, remove God's favor, or take away the covenant promise that Joseph inherited. Through all of this, Joseph was learning that that God will never abandon or betray him no matter how bad things get. See, God was allowing this injustice to happen to further build Joseph's character, to further strengthen his faith, to prepare him to become the savior of Egypt and of his own family. James chapter 1 tells us that when we face trials of many kinds, we should consider it pure joy. Why? Because James says, you know, the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Well, Joseph's faith was being tested. It was producing perseverance for him. And then James says, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That's what God was doing in Joseph's life. Prison was the school in which Joseph was going to learn to wait on the Lord's timing. Warren Wiersbe put it this way, Joseph would learn that God's delays are not God's denials. And it gave Joseph time to meditate on God's promises, to pray in God's presence, and to ponder those prophetic dreams that hinted at God's plans for his future. For two years, Joseph stayed the course. He was faithful and trusted God to keep His promises. He clung to those boyhood dreams. He didn't know how or when God was going to accomplish His plans, but he trusted God's heart, God's hand, and God's timing. That's what we're trying to do as a church right now. You know, we know that God wants His people to gather. He doesn't want us to be at home. It's great that we can do this, but Hebrews tells us not to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. In Acts The early church gathered together even under risk of persecution. We know God wants us to be together, to worship, to study His Word. We know that He wants us to to use our hands and, and to embrace those who are hurting, to give people a shoulder to cry upon. He wants us to share the gospel and meet needs in ways that can only be done in the flesh. But like Joseph, we feel like we're in prison, we're stuck. We wonder when all of this is going to come to an end. When can we get back to fulfilling God's dream for us, the church? And like Joseph, we don't know the when or the how, but we know the who. 
And we know that we can trust that God will accomplish His plans through the church. But we have to trust His heart, His hand, and His timing. And we all find ourselves in difficult situations, whether it's by our own fault, the fault of someone else, or just life in general. And even when we're suffering trials and mistreatment, God can bless us. He can make the best out of the worst situations. God was with Joseph. Not to get him out of slavery, but to help him excel and prosper in his situation. See, the Bible doesn't promise us escape from the storms or the valleys, but it does promise God's presence and blessing while we're in them and that He will see us through them to the other side. God's Word promises that through these times of trial, God is at work to perfect us, to strengthen us, to prepare us for what He has next. We have a choice of how we're going to handle this situation. We can either take the easy out that Satan presents us, that the world tells us, that we should do. The easy outs are so appealing on the surface, but underneath, they're deadly. They will entrap us. We can choose to take the easy out, or we can do the right thing, even when it's hard, even when it's costly, even when everyone else is telling us it's foolish. Our choice, which which of those two choices we make, is really based on our relationship with God. Joseph chose to honor his relationship with God, to obey God's word no matter what. He made that the number one priority of his life. What about you? Is that your priority? Do you have a relationship with God? What choice would you make? The easy way? Or no matter what it costs, the right way? I want you to know right now that the very first right choice you have to make is to trust your life now and for all of eternity in the hands of Jesus. Jesus Christ endured far worse than Joseph. And he did it for you. He did it so you could receive the blessing of life forevermore, of forgiveness of your sins, of a fresh start, a clean slate, so that you could be made right with God. Do you have that kind of relationship with God? If you don't, I beg of you, please, contact us. You're watching on YouTube. There's a link at the bottom of the comments there, of the description of this video, that you can click and it will take you to our website and you can communicate with us. And you can say, you know what? I have prayed today to give my life to Jesus Christ, to receive His free gift of forgiveness. Or you can say, I, I want to know more information. Can someone contact me and help me know how I can have a relationship with Jesus Christ? I pray that you would do that. For those of us who do know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we've given our lives to Christ. That doesn't mean that life is easy. That doesn't mean it's a bed of roses. We still have difficulties. We still have trials. We're all in the midst of this trial together. We're in this boat together. Is God using this moment in your life to do something in your heart and mind? Is He preparing you in some way? Is He calling you to a deeper walk with Him? What would God have you do with what's right in front of you to grow where He's planted you, to prosper in such a way that you bless your family, your friends, your neighbors. I hope that you'll think about that and pray about that today.
Would you pray with me now? Father, we are so thankful for Joseph's story, for the example that it sets for us, for how clearly it explains to us that, yes, we live in a fallen world. We live in a world of hardship, a world of injustice, where we can expect that in some way, at some time, we're all going to be mistreated by others. But in the midst of all of that, you are there to be with us, to be faithful and true, to be the anchor for our souls. Father, I pray we would put our trust in you, that we would let go of the bitterness, of the anger, of the fear, of trying to fix it all ourselves, and would trust your spirit to guide us, to give us the wisdom to know the right thing to do and when and how to do it. Or there's somebody who's watching and listening right now, and they know that you don't live in their heart. They know they've been trying to make it on their own. They've been trying to earn your favor. They've been trying to fix things themselves. And right now you're calling them to just surrender, just to let go and to trust you to forgive them and to save them. Father, I pray you would embrace them with your love right now and help them to give their life to you. Father, I know there are believers that are listening and worshiping right now, members of our church family, that that they're hurting. They're afraid. They don't know what the future holds. They're concerned about their job and their family and their health. Father, there are people listening right now that have experienced this kind of betrayal, this kind of slander, this kind of mistreatment at the hands of other people. God, whatever their situation, help them to know the right thing to do and to trust you to help them through it. Whether that's forgiving somebody that's wronged them, whether that's making restitution for something they've done to someone else, whether that's stepping out in faith to give or to serve in some way, I pray they be obedient to your leading. Father, thank you so much for this time that we've had together today. I pray you would give us the vision that we need to follow you tomorrow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.